Hello and welcome to Risk Talks. My name is Edward James and I'm the founding director of RCQ Associates, the risk, credit and quantitative recruitment specialists. Today I'm joined by Cosmo Pasciani. We're very lucky to have Cosmo join us today. He's the former group COO of Algeris. He's the ex-CRO of European Stability Mechanism and he was previously the head of risk and compliance at uh, for the Asset Protection Scheme at RBS. He's got more than 23 years experience working in finance, uh, working for different financial institutions, mainly in the city of London, and all focused on risk management. Welcome, Cosimo. Hello, hello, Edward. Welcome. <laughs> Thank you very much for the invite, and uh, happy to be here with you today. No, that's my pleasure. It's, um, it's, it's, it's good to be speaking to you, and I think we've got some really interesting points to discuss today. So today we're talking about uh, the European response to coronavirus, lessons learned, and uh, looking into our crystal ball and what the future has in store for us. So if I start off with the first question, uh, Cosmo, we'll sort of broken down into two really. Um, one, can you talk me through where we are now? And two, can you talk me th through what your thoughts are and the reaction to the coronavirus pandemic from a financial perspective? Yeah, I would say... Um... At the moment, we are, uh, and it's under the eyes of everybody, in what I would define a transition moment. I think we have been through in the last uh, months from uh, pretty much February to the summer to the first wave of the coronavirus with a huge impact on economic growth and uh, employment numbers and also on a special uh, small and medium enterprises arena. We saw the effects under our own eyes and uh, now we are entering into a phase in which we are trying to understand if we are entering into a second phase, a second wave of the coronavirus that will be as bad as the first one, that will imply uh, forms of lockdown as the first phase, or if there are ways in which we can control the contagion. Uh, so at the moment, there is a lot of uh, uncertainty. They also could be maybe the, one of the main topics of today's chat because we all live in a, in a situation in which we are faced by an invisible enemy uh, that we need to fight. And the way in which we need to fight it, they need to be pretty much addressed, like social distancing and also the lockdown itself. I've been demonstrated to be the most effective measures, but then, then they have... They have uh, an impact on the economy. And after we'll speak a bit about also about results. So at the moment, if you look also at the forecast around, there are two scenarios. One is uh, what if uh, the second wave will be a much milder one, so there won't be any more lockdown, we go back, can go back to a gradual recovery on the economy, is defined like a, a long U-shaped recovery. Or what if we have a second wave that will be as bad as the first one with lockdown, and then we are we're going to be faced by an L trend of the economy with the obvious consequences. We witnessed a dramatic decrease in GDP. If you look at numbers like from the UK, from Italy, from other countries, talking about a 15-20% GDP decrease year on year. In terms of unemployment numbers, they are still very high in the US they remain incredibly high, maybe the highest they ever had. So this is a situation where we are now. So it's a transition period. Then if you look in terms of response, uh, and I will focus on the 
European and UK side of things that I know better. Uh, I, I would say that uh, the response was uh, immediate because we know that both the Fed or the Bank of England and also the ECB in Europe, they used all the tools they had in terms of monetary policy to support the economy. Uh, in a, in a, the ECB launched a purchase program of uh, roughly 750 billion. This is an amazing amount. Not talking about the Fed, I think we're talking about roughly over two, 2 trillion of bond purchase program. So pretty much they're buying everything that is there, is out there. So this was the first one. So monetary policy, I think there were all the right actions taken because we had the 2008 template. Uh, then what happened, uh, there were a series of interventions by the European institutions. Mostly uh, the first one arrived was the support to unemployment through a program called SAFE. Then we had uh, the ESM, that now can the European Stability Mechanism, that now can provide uh, support to members of the Eurozone through special loans to, to finance health expenditures. So it's a very limited uh, target, but very important potentially for some countries. Nobody applies so far, but we'll see in the coming months. And then you have the commission that also launched the recovery fund. There's another roughly 680 billion of intervention into the real economy. What I think is interesting is that uh, if you look at the European response, is then catered to dealing with emergency to calm down the market, to provide the safety net to the member states for health expenditures. So the most important one at the moment, but there is also, I think, a strong focus into the future because the recovery fund is aimed to investments that should support the growth, not only in a coming period of years, but uh, for a longer, longer horizon. And I think it's comforting to see this, this kind of long-term thinking happening together with dealing with emergency. Then if you look at the UK, I think it's a similar situation, meaning that the UK government uh, had affordable schemes and a lot of support to the real economy coming. And uh, this is, I think, explains why to some extent uh, they say the social fabric in UK and Europe supported better the impact of the crisis. And also, therefore, uh, the financial institutions, because we saw obviously an increase of uh, delinquency and non-performing loans, but not as bad as without the support that was provided. So it's a transition moment, I would define it. And so we need to see what is going to happen in the coming, let's say, maybe a few weeks, if not months, to see if the second wave is coming or not, and what the governments will do. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's going to be interesting to see. I think it's a constantly changing uh, an evolving situation, uh, both from a human perspective and a financial perspective. But can you talk me through um, what we talked about earlier in terms of velocity, so the pace of change? Can you talk me through what, um, what, what your view is on that side of things? Yeah, the way I see the pandemic crisis is that uh, it can be compared to, let's say, a mix of a war situation together with uh, a big difference, uh, the difference being that the enemy that we are fighting is invisible. That is not, it's like a, it's a war, but fought with, uh, yeah, precisely with, uh, with viruses or with radiation. With, uh, so in some extent, I think uh, the, the, as always during a, a war period, 
we saw a lot of changes in, uh, as I said before, into the fabric of society because, you know, thinking, for example, about teleworking, smart working, or people that could not go back to the office and use the transport, so they had to reinvent their own uh, vital space, including the way which they shopped for things. Uh, at the same time, uh, there was a huge change in which the banks uh, or the government or the corporate started approaching the use of technology into their own businesses. So when I talk about velocity, I'm talking about the fact that we could see that is uh, incremental uh, speed of change uh, from a technological point of view, because a lot of uh, uh, processes and a lot of uh, things that we're doing before, it looks like we're putting more emphasis to have them automated, so to reduce uh, the human uh, footprint into the process itself. So it's down to then to um, technological uh, changes of, for example, using uh, machine learning also for some of the services that we're doing, using uh, robots to answer the telephone. I think all of us, we had the experience of uh, answering, speaking with the people that we realize after they are robots online, they're not real people, but they're also going through now more complex tasks on a telephone or online. So, and so there's a sense of acceleration on this trend. Together, I think uh, there are a series of other trends that are accelerating. Some are virtuous and some are not. I think uh, one of them is uh, that uh, people, they have much more consciousness uh, because of the difference between before and during the pandemic, for example, on the quality of our air or the quality of the environment. I think uh, there is a marked desire maybe to live, you know, to have a greener economy. And the European Commission is why is launching this huge program to support that part. So I think there is a sense of uh, ongoing speed of change that will have a much wider impact on society. And I think I'm going to speak a bit later about it. I think the issue is that we will need to see how then this will have a deeper impact on, for example, on the political side, because uh, uh, there was also a different degree in which the governments were able to respond or address the crisis. They may have, uh, they may imply a political price to pay at some stage. I'm thinking more, for example, about the US. Uh, and uh, at the same time, is also how society, society then will change uh, and also some of the habits that we have, then with an impact on uh, demand for some products or services. So, no, I mean, there's tons of interesting points there. I guess the government response and financial markets response to, to what's been going on has been interesting. I think on the whole, good, but varies in parts. Um, I guess if we actually skip on to um, the risk management specific side of things. So from what I'm seeing, it looks as though risk management may have a wider function. Um, do you see risk changing and, and sort of how do you see risk having a, a wider, wider remit within the sort of COVID and post COVID world? Well, for sure, the last uh, uh, month, uh, there have been a testing ground for everybody dealing with risk management, for CROs or risk experts, um, and also maybe for compliance experts, because then we can touch base a bit about it later. Obviously, also the increase of uh, operations done remotely or from one home, or they also have some kind of compliance aspects to be taken care of in terms of also, also data protection or protection of information or information security. Uh, 
I think the, the point is that uh, from a risk management point of view, we had the template of 2008, for sure, what happened. Here is like, uh, uh, like 2008 on steroids. And that implies maybe, first of all, a, um, a rethinking about the role of risk management in some of the institutions, in some of the corporates. And we can touch base about it, about it a bit later. And uh, I think uh, there is also an element of uh, the risk function to see how they can exploit more the technologies that now they're becoming more and more available in terms of using more algorithm-based uh, calculation or analysis and to look at ways in which the processes can be more automated in some parts. Therefore, you have less uh, requirement for, let's say, um, low-level human work, but you can have more dedicated resources or human resources to look at the quality of the output and decision-making. So from, from a certain point of view, I think uh, um, it's a big challenge. It's a big challenge because then you have to pretty much revisit all the uh, organizations and processes in light of a world that it has changed so dramatically in, a, in such a short uh, period of time. Maybe something that I will do from a prediction point of view, I will revisit, for example, the contingency plans and the emergency plans, because uh, all, most of the contingency plans were built for relocating people from one office to another. So maybe from the center of London to Kent or Stratford or wherever you had your contingency uh, locations. But in, with the pandemic, it was a completely different scenario. So maybe it's also done to say, okay, what kind of likely scenario we need to be ready for, maybe adding two or three related to a pandemic life situation. It's been interesting with those sort of um, business continuity sites or, or out of town sites. Uh, I, I know some of them have been used, but I guess we're all, uh, um, at least in the past, a lot of people have been stuck at home and not able to go out and uh, yeah, it's really interesting seeing in predictions for this year when you look back to sort of December, January about what the main risks and threats would be. Uh, I, I think it was a very brave person who was putting pandemic on there. Um, I think that was certainly an outlier. But yeah, it's interesting to see where things are going to be. But from a risk perspective, what what would you say the areas of most um, what the focused areas are for risk um, in a post-pandemic world. So what are, the, what are the areas that you think are going to be important? And of course, I'm happy to answer from a hiring perspective about how things are. But yes, what, what, what do you think are the important areas for, for risk going, going forward? Yeah, I would say the, um, there is a big, there is a big uh, uh, variable here. And the big variable is how long do we expect the crisis to last? meaning is what I was saying before. So is a transition to calmer waters or we're going to have another spike? Uh, and then we also the issue about when the vaccine will be available, et cetera. And why saying that? Because I think this is the most important variable for a risk manager because when you're profiling your risk appetite or your risk assessment, you need to consider that, for example, uh, on a SME space, uh, what kind of companies or what kind of shock that we need to, we're going to witness on the companies we support or we are lending to. And so we need to understand what kind of companies they have going to have a short 
term shock. Therefore, it's like a, there are pandemic victims, but we hope we can help them to recover. Or what kind of companies they tried during the pandemic because of the kind of products they were offering or you know, services. Therefore, we, we, may, we may want to devote more resources to that. And then also how to manage the companies that not only are victims of pandemic, but they were also in some kind of uh, really had troubles before. Therefore, we need to see if, for example, if you need to pump up our recovery functions to help these companies to go through this transition, preserving as much as possible, you know, the, the business or the workforce or to rescue them. So to some extent, it is really a function on how long we expect, because the, the longer the crisis will be, the longer the sense of uncertainty will be, uh, and the longer the, the slump on a GDP growth or the, or the economy will be, I think the higher number of uh, companies that could thrive uh, during the, after the pandemic will reduce, you will have more cases of companies that cannot survive even if they could uh, in a short-term shock. So I think for me, from a risk management perspective, it's really down to having a very clear view about your portfolio, what you have, your credits, and uh, your exposure. And at the same time, on the other side, on the financial risk side, on the market side, uh, is really about assessing the risk of a higher volatility in the market. Uh, is under the eyes of everybody, apart from the last maybe few days, uh, that uh, there is uh, there has been uh, since April a big disconnect between the financial markets and the real economy. So we saw a huge slump on the economy, but then the financial markets they continue to work very well, especially on the equity side. And on the capital market side, they were supported heavily by the central bank uh, intervention and the public intervention. So as a risk manager, we may want to argue, okay, what if, what if, is our typical question as a risk manager, what if uh, conditions will change in terms of volatility? What if uh, there will be less support from the government on some sectors, etc.? So it's a fine art of trying to find the scenarios that could help them to drive the strategy of the institution uh, we're working for. And uh, yeah, yeah, no, it's it's really interesting to see what's um, what's going on there in terms of change. And um, I guess if we had to also touch on what your major concerns would be for the next phase, what what would you say your main concerns are for the for the future and and for the next phase? What what are our biggest risks and threats? Well, uh, in the coming period, uh, we're still talking about uh, obviously the this sense of uncertainty. Mm. Um, and to be sure that the uncertainty doesn't become, again, panic, where we are able to move the dial of risk from, uh, from what was panic and fear at the beginning of the pandemic to uncertainty back to risk management, so stuff we can manage, we know how to do it. And I think it is, for me, the first uh, element of, uh, of attention. The other one, I think, is... Uh, what changes in what the change in society and how people behave and look at their life will have an impact also on patterns in terms of uh, demand for some products and services and also how people will change an approach once again uh, to their life because the big lessons that we had from 2008 is that after people change attitude towards for example uh, debt they change attitude especially towards the relationship between themselves and the financial institutions, 
and the government. Uh, if you look through the lenses of us um, political scientists, you may say that uh, the wave of populism that we saw across uh, the world was also driven by the aftermath of the 2008 crisis. So now in 2020, uh, you may want to argue that uh, there may be changes in which in a society that's more and more horizontal will have uh, more uh, friction and conflict. I saw recently in a program of a conference, this conference for the first time spelled very clearly the risk of social unrest. And this is something I think we need to look uh, after because uh, as players also on the financial markets, on the risk management, we want to understand what are the early signs of potential friction from the point of view. And, uh, and I think uh, uh, another risk is to see what is the capacity of the government to keep the, say, the promise of having uh, or supporting people through either uh, support to the health system or support to the economy. And this, this is where I think there is a theme of trade-offs, or trade-offs of decision-making that is coming bigger and bigger thanks or because of the pandemic. Yeah, so I think trade-offs is a really interesting area in terms of, I guess, you can't have everything, you, you can't have a fully functioning economy with, with everyone all in the office, in the workplace, and being in, in large cities. So, yeah, I, I, I do wonder what the trade-offs will look like and, and where things will be, but it's, um, I think we've got an interesting future ahead of us. Yeah, there is, because, uh, you know, I, I can give you two or three examples of trade-offs we experienced during the crisis. One is between uh, uh, keeping people healthy, so lockdown, social distancing, closing shops and pubs and restaurants, uh, cinemas, uh, pretty much uh, bringing to full closure all the entertainment industry uh, to preserve the economic growth. So there was a huge trade-off, and each country, each parliament, uh, each uh, even organization, they had to take a decision what to prefer, the health of people or economic growth or consumption, let's call it, more than economic growth. On the other side, you have another huge trade-off, uh, we spoke before uh, about it, is between helicopter money or market forces. And this is where you see this kind of hiatus between the, the market having a behavior that usually you will not associate uh, to the big, biggest recession since uh, uh, 1929. Uh, they are behaving like if uh, they're having data either from another dimension where things, the pandemic didn't happen, or obviously they are relying a lot on public intervention. So the question is, uh, what kind of trade-offs do you want to have? Do you want to keep helicopter money or supporting the economy with your policies, or there is a moment in which you need to go back gradually to use the market forces to discriminate between the market players. These are not the big trade-offs. The third one is between going back to industrial production, level of consumption or CO2 emission as before, or using or taking stock of what we've seen in the last months, and maybe having a stronger approach to greening up the economy. And this is what in Europe and uh, in the UK is happening. I think there is, a, if, if you see the US, they have a different approach. They believe you should go back to industrial production and go back pretty much being even more lenient in terms of pollutants. So anyway, this is something 
that's creating a huge debate. And there are tens of these trade-offs. So the role of the politicians and the institutions would be to, to start calling out more loudly what and why some decisions are being taken. So, so in short, do you think, uh, do, do you think the, the governments or, or various governments could do with a, a chief risk officer or, or someone else along <laughs> those lines to help out and make those decisions and look at those trade-offs? I guess you could argue there might be economists that... Uh, yeah, I would say I would say there is a role, not because uh, obviously I would be interested to be a CRO of some uh, big government, but because I think there, there is really, um, I think the risk management function is at the same point in which uh, we were uh, after the long-term uh, capital management crisis and the Russian debt crisis and after 2008. There is a requirement to learn from what happened to maybe to gear up the way in which we look at risk management because it's under the eyes of everybody that uh, the risk of pandemic was there on the charts. And now we are seeing more and more plans that were into the drawers of governments, even on web pages. If you look at the UK government or the Italian one, there were pandemic plans ready to be used. Mm. Uh, so the question is that, uh, do we really need uh, maybe to have a, a more radical approach on how we manage risks, not only for financial institutions, not all, only for corporates, that they're doing that more and more. The Cambridge Center for Risk Studies published a very good report on that recently, how corporates are using more to have a risk function. And maybe I think we need to think about a CRO of state uh, or a CRO function of state in which there is an independent assessment of what are the top risks for a country or for a region and how you're going to address them or if you're ready to start more scenario analysis also on management of, uh, of the public bodies and politics. There's so many things that, that I'm sure we could discuss more about, Cosmo, but uh, yeah, it's been, um, it's been really interesting talking to you about all these things. Um, uh, I've certainly taken a lot from this. Uh, is, there any, is there anything else you'd like to ask me or are you quite happy? I think we've covered everything. Uh, well, uh, maybe I have a question to you as a recruiter, uh, because uh, I think one, one big element of the transformation of the speed of change is also that maybe new skills are required also in risk management. Do you have any, did you see any change on the, on the kind of request you have in terms of skill force? Thank you. I mean, that's that's a, definitely an interesting question. So, uh, I mean, long-term trends, I think risk is, we're looking at more quantitative profiles on the, on the whole. So my advice for anyone who's relatively junior who's watching this and looking to build a career in risk, certainly quantitative skills are great and in demand. And, and I don't think with the evolution of big data, I don't think they're going to go away. Um, on top of that, uh, I guess if you're talking about financial institutions and banks in particular, we're always seeing continued capital reporting, enterprise risk and prudential risk, hiring. Um, I think the, the world is evolving. Operational resilience is something that's key as a key topic at the moment. But I think that is quite a small profile in terms of how many people actually are doing and specialising in operational resilience. And typically they focus on individual areas within the firm and of course, finally, credit risk and credit analysis. 
Uh, I think there's definitely been a trend again towards automation and you know more more sort of risk models and reviewing models. I still think there's a need for human analysis and, and having opinions and discussion. And I think people actually discussing the facts is is good and key. So yeah, and of course we've got no idea about where people are going to be based and in locations. Uh, it will be interesting to see in terms of whether firms decide it's okay to have people based um, uh, away from their main hubs and cities in, in other locations in that country or other, other countries. I think the world, the future will be very international and potentially fairly mobile as well. So thanks, and Lou, it's been a lovely to talk to you. I think we're coming up towards the end of our time. So Lou, thank you so much. It's been my absolute pleasure, Cosmo, having a, uh, a conversation with you and hearing about um, what you've had to say. I'll include a link to Cosmo's LinkedIn profile um, on this link. And um, again, thank you so much. Please do like, follow, share, and uh, thanks again for your time for listening. Thanks, Cosmo. Thank you very much. Bye. Take care. Bye.